Welcome. We are glad you have chosen to join us here on Brit David Podcast. Today, Pastor Tim shares a message from Luke chapter 5, 36 through 39, entitled, The Challenge of Change. Pastor Tim states, our brains often interpret change as a threat, making us naturally resistant. However, change is both inevitable and necessary. So how do we handle the challenge of change? We must do so intentionally. Here's Pastor Tim. Amen. That's good. You can have a seat. I'm glad that you're here today. Imagine, if you will, filling out a crossword puzzle. You know how it works. You read the clue and immediately to mind comes some kind of answer, but then you look over at the grid to make sure that there are number spaces for that answer that you think that you've come up with. Imagine if you have just read a clue that says a four-letter word in church. You know, you're not supposed to think about those kind of words. Certainly not supposed to say those kind of words. We call them ugly words, don't we? We call them that for a reason. They're ugly and we don't want to say those kinds of things. You look over at the grid, you discover that the clue for a four-letter word in church has actually six letters. Now what do you do with it, right? Let me go ahead and give it to you. The word is change. Many Baptist churches, change might as well be a four-letter word. It's an ugly word to us. We don't like it. In fact, you may hear somebody from time to time literally say out loud, I don't like change, you know? But yet, I didn't see very many Model A's out in the parking lot. (laughs) I don't see many ways that we don't like uh, some changes. There have been so many uh, advances in, in medicine, advances in technology, different things that do indeed make life easier for us. And although we may say that we don't like change, there are a number of things that we embrace when it comes to change itself. Why is that? Why do, why do we seem so averse to certain changes? I want to give you a perspective today that we don't hear very often. Last week I read an article that was written by a neurosurgeon, a, a brain surgeon, who took on that question simply with the, with the perspective, what is our brain doing when it comes to meeting change, and why does that make us resistant? Let me give you some of these reasons that he shared. Number one, He said the brain often interprets change as a threat, which in turn creates resistance. Our brain is organized to think in terms of of minimize risk and maximize reward. It doesn't like threat, and so instead it wants to run away. Number two, he says the brain doesn't like gaps or blanks. And that's true, isn't it? If we've got a blank, there's something that we don't know. We want to fill that in pretty quickly, don't we? Instead of fear, filling it in with matters of faith, we typically fill it in with matters that make us fearful. There's a fear of uncertainty, and the more holes or gaps that are there, we just don't really want much to do with that. Number three, right on the heels of that, people naturally assume the worst. Because our, our brain is wired into this 
uh, into trying to pick up threats. In fact, he says two-thirds of your brain cells in that fight-or-flight part of your brain is wired to pick up the negative. It's looking for those threats specifically. And so we fill those things in with the very worst thing possible. Number four, he said emotions influence receptivity to change. In fact, facts are not nearly as powerful as emotions when it comes to dealing with change and when it comes to making those kinds of decisions. It's not that I don't know enough. It's that I'm fearful for what I do know. Number five, there's six of them. Number five, the brain can only handle so much change at once. In fact, he says a new level of information, a new level of change that comes to us results in a correlating level of fear. So if that happens minimally, you know, there's a little change. My reaction usually is pretty small, but if it's big... My reaction's usually pretty big. And if you begin to compound big change after big change after big change, suddenly my brain is in overload and just can't handle that. Then finally, number six, he says, the brain gets accustomed to routine. It's true, isn't it? Old habits die hard. It's like a It's like a tug of war with us between that which is familiar and easy versus that which is unfamiliar and difficult. And we typically assist the side that's familiar. All of that scientific kind of stuff really gets us to what we already know. Instilling change can be a challenge. It can be challenging in church. It can be challenging in your family. It can be challenging for you even as an individual. So then here's the truth that makes us squirm today. Jesus demands change. I don't like it. (laughs) And yes, Jesus demands it. Now what am I going to do? Do I obey my flesh? Do I obey what it is that I'm, I'm wired to do? Do I trust what the Lord's already doing? That He knows every piece, He knows the filling in of every blank, and I know then that I can trust Him no matter what. I saw this week, I don't remember where I saw it. I don't remember if it was something that was on on TV, if it was something that was on uh, Facebook video, whatever. Anyway, it was some kind of challenge where, where the person lays down flat, and they have this bed of nails that's supposed to come down, and it's... And it's geared to stop right before it gets to the person. But then the idea was, you know, flinch and you're out. <laughs> I'm flinching, you know. Bed of nails is headed toward me. I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to flinch. Even if they have given me every assurance that this is safe, it's still difficult, isn't it? At the end of Luke chapter number 5, Jesus tells a parable. In fact, he really tells two parables to express this one truth that he demands change in our lives. And I want us to look at it. The problem with the parables, though, is that outside of their context, if I simply take them out and treat them just simply as the parables themselves, and I don't wonder why he tells this parable at this particular point in the story, 
I'm probably going to miss it. And so I want us to put it in the context that it's in. So let me give them to you. There are three. First of all, Jesus demands a change in our relationships. He demands a change in our relationships, in our relationship with Him, in our relationship then that's also going to be with others. Why does Jesus tell this parable at this particular point? It has to do with what's happened to Matthew, or to Levi, as he's mentioned here in the book of Luke. This party that he throws. In fact, let's go back and pick that up just a minute. Look, if you will, back in verse number 29. Then Levi, that's Matthew, gave Jesus a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Now, you get the picture, right? Matthew has just given his heart to Jesus. He's just become a new believer. There has been a change in the relationship that Matthew has with Jesus. Because he's had a change in his relationship with Jesus, it's also going to bring about a change in his relationship to his peers, to his friends, to his family, and to others. And the Pharisees just don't get that, do they? The Pharisees argue with Jesus because he's gone to this party. They argue with Jesus because Matthew is trying to win his friends whom they, whom they are sure that God doesn't want anything to do with that kind of person. And so Jesus says this to him in verse 36. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, no one puts a piece from a brand new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. I don't know if you've ever had the occasion of having carpet that still seems like it's kind of new, you know? You feel like it is. It hasn't been down there. It doesn't seem like for that terribly amount of long. Suddenly you spill something on the carpet, it's stained, and it will not come out. What do you do? You call the carpet company. They come out and they say, well, the only thing we can do is kind of patch it. So they go into the closet. They go into some place that it's not going to be, it's not going to be too terribly noticeable if they cut a little section out. And so they cut out a little piece of that carpet. It's the same carpet. You know, to say when they laid it down in your house, they laid down that too, right? It's the very same time. So they go and they cut that out, and they make a patch out of it, right? They got it out of the closet. It hadn't been walked on. It hadn't been spilled on before. It hasn't been cleaned over and over and over again. The sun has not been shining down on it. Suddenly you discover that that carpet that you thought was so new, <laughs> suddenly you realize it ain't that new. It's the same carpet but it just doesn't match anymore. As Jesus tells this parable, they're talking about religion, so to speak. They're talking about what's happened in Matthew's life. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about these disciples. And they're talking about this fasting that they have been uh, talking about there in in those previous verses. They thought that Jesus had come simply to make Judaism better. Just to make it better. 
you know, maybe there's some pieces that we're missing. You know, Jesus, you can fill in the gaps. I mean, you, you can call yourself Messiah if you want to. We've been waiting on a Messiah. The Messiah is missing. So we can just kind of take you and let you fill in the gaps. It doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, you put that new onto the old. It doesn't make the old look better. It makes the old look older. And it's always going to tear away from it. I had this pair of jeans when I was a kid that I loved, you know. It seemed like all my jeans ended up getting holes in the knees, you know, before very long. And my grandmother would put patches on them. And she used to put those patches on that were still kind of denim colored, you know, and you, and you kind of iron them on from the, from the inside and as if that's supposed to fool anybody into thinking you really don't have a hole in your blue jeans, right? I ain't like those. Those patches were for chumps. I want, a, I want a patch that was cool, you know. I wanted one that had like superhero stuff on it. I wanted patches that had a flag on it. I wanted patches with something on it that, that looked like. So she'd put that patch on that knee and a patch on that knee. And then it's not long before the jeans start tearing in other places. And before long, I got patches all over these jeans. I love those jeans. I wore them till I shouldn't have worn them, you know. You know? I just liked them so much. I wanted to hold on to them for as long as I could. And I figured if you just patched them up enough, it should be okay. It just gets to a point where it's not okay anymore. Right? Jesus did not come to revolutionize Judaism. He didn't come for you that you might be, as one of our popular preachers these days says, that you might become the best version of yourself. He's come into your heart and into your life that He brings real significant change. A transformation. In Romans chapter 12, remember the Bible says that we are to be transformed. Right? The word that's used there is the word that we get metamorphosis from. That little caterpillar one day crawls up on that limb spins himself inside of a cocoon. It's not going to be long before he's going to emerge from that cocoon, right? He is not a worm who is strapped on wings. He is a new creature. His nature has been changed. He's different, not just when you look at him on the outside. He is different on the inside. If you ask Jesus to come into your heart, it's not that you're simply adding Him into your life. He doesn't come into your life to be an add-on. He comes into your life to make transformation. He comes into your life not that He might just simply be the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He comes into your life to be the Lord. He doesn't come into your life to make suggestions on how you might be able to make your life a little bit better. He comes into your life to be the master. Jesus is telling these Pharisees that he has not come simply to make Judaism a better place to go to hell from. He has come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He has come that they might have everlasting life. 
it is going to be a change in your relationship with Jesus. There's some of you that have been to church for a long, long time. I grew up going to church. I agree with the guy that I heard earlier this week at uh, this evangelistic meeting down in South Georgia that I was a part of. He said, I, I was a, I've been a Southern Baptist nine months before I was born. <laughs> I've been a Southern Baptist nine months before I was born. And ain't missed many Sundays since, you know? It's not enough. It's not enough. You're not transformed because you come to church. You're not transformed because you do certain things. We do those things not to bring about change. We do those things because we've been changed. Come to church now not because my mom carries me. I come to church now because I am the son of the king. And I want to be with his people. I want to be with my church family. So it brings a change in relationship that I have with him, but it also brings about a change in relationship that I have with others. When Matthew first became a tax collector, it changed the relationships that he had with other people. You see, to become one of those tax collectors like he is, to have the tax office that that would be his tax office, it's a job that has to be bid on. So you bid to the Roman government. You know, if, if you will give me this job, then I will collect the appointed taxes, plus I will give you X number. In other words, I'm going to take a little bit more, and I'm going to pass that along to you too. Matthew slit his throat in his community when he bid on that job. And when he got the job, Matthew doesn't have any friends anymore. Matthew doesn't have any family anymore. Matthew is as lonely as he can possibly be. And when it comes to friends, the only real thing that he could claim as friends or acquaintances is described in this passage as a great number of tax collectors. This says others. His own gospel says sinners. People that nobody else wants anything to do with. But when Jesus came by and said, follow me, and the Bible says immediately he left that tax office. It doesn't mean that he hung a sign on the door that says, gone to lunch, we'll be back in, and then turns the little clock thing. That's not what that means. When he left the tax office, he left the tax office business because there's somebody else who's bidding on that job, and they're in that seat while it's still warm. So when Matthew bid on that job, he cut his throat as far as his community goes. When he said yes to Jesus, he cut his throat as far as his career goes. Now it really is just him and Jesus. We say it from time to time, don't we? That if I just had Jesus and I don't have anything else, then that's enough. Matthew's living it out. He's living it out. Join us tomorrow. For the conclusion of Pastor Tim's message, The Challenge of Change. 
Pastor Tim would love to connect and share with you about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how you can know that you know that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. That address is churchoffice at britdavid.org. We are located at 2801 West Brit David Road, Columbus, Georgia, 31909. Thanks again for joining us here on Brit David Podcast.